Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 32 for the final quarter of April 2012. Today I'm bringing you an interview with Derek Bartholomus, a person who is described by Steve Novella on the 342nd episode of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe as... Some young whippersnapper. Derek is a leading investigator into the Billy Meyer UFO case. His research into the Meyer case has revealed not only what erroneous claims Billy Meyer has made, but also how those claims were manufactured. I've brought Derek on as a prelude to future episodes, since he's done some of the most recent skeptical work and compilation into the Meyer material, I think that he's probably the best person to introduce the topic. So Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And it's great to have you, or hopefully over the course of the next hour or so, we'll find out that it's great to have you. It's going. It's going to be fun. I mean, we've we've known each other, you know, online for quite some time. So it's nice to finally be able to talk to you. Indeed, and you are probably the first really high-ranking person I've ever had on this show, Uh, or at least in terms of the first person who has the Skeptics Guide to the Universe in their resume. (laughs) Uh, So let's let's get right to the point of uh, well almost right to the point. We'll get into the Meyer material in a bit, but I wanted to first ask you how you started to investigate this material, you know, considering especially that the case really started a decade or two before you were born. Right. Well, I used to be a member of the Independent Investigations Group, which is affiliated with the Center for Inquiry out here in Los Angeles. And I joined the group around... 2001, 2002, and within the first year, we found out that a part-time member, uh, part-time employee of the center had been in contact with this guy by the name of Michael Horn, who was making wild claims about the Meyer case, and this person was having these contacts without any knowledge of any other employee at, or, 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 um, associate of the center and this person made the mistake of calling it an easily reproducible hoax and then proceeded to reproduce absolutely none of it and so michael horn was going on radio shows and websites and talking about how screwed up you know how you know the center for inquiry is and i decided to just get involved and try to see if i could you know repair some of the damage that had been done when this person said that it was a hoax and then didn't show any way on how it could have been hoaxed. So were you interested Uh, in this just from a viewpoint of looking into UFOs or looking into the Meyer case in particular, or was there a specific skill set that you had due to training, college, uh, in terms of it was particularly relevant to the Meyer case? Well, I've always been interested in science fiction and extraterrestrials and so on, but I've never investigated UFOs. Uh, this is, in fact, the only case I've ever looked into. I'm I'm aware of other UFO cases, but I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not a scientific ufologist um, as some other people out out in the community are. Um, I work professionally in post production on television shows and movies. And so when they're talking about 
ways on being able to make some photographs or especially some of the, the movie uh, claims. That I do have experience and I have direct experience that leads me to understand how these things were were done. But as far as a general, you know, looking into UFOs, no. This was really just like, okay, let's figure out what is going on with this case so that we can address it since there's this guy out there saying all sorts of, you know, things about about the Center for Inquiry. Okay. So you've spent a long time, and I guess the last 11 years or so, going through the Meyer material. Um, someone can tell just from the level of detail uh, from your website, which I'll post a link to the show notes if you want to give the, the listeners what the URL is. It's billymeyerufocase.com. And it's, as I said, I'll link up to it in the show notes. So I guess let's let's dive right into some of these specific claims. Um, we'll go over a few of some of the more famous ones first, but then get into ones that you didn't necessarily address in your SGU interview and just sort of your favorite ones out there. Okay. So I guess for the first one, tell us something about the wedding cake UFO, probably one of the most infamous alleged UFO shots from the Billy Meyer material. Well, Billy Meyer has taken lots of photographs of various what he claims extraterrestrial uh, spacecraft the the one thing that's really important to understand about Meyer is that he came to prominence in the mid 1970s and the reason for that is that prior to him in the in the 40s 50s and 60s most UFO photos were blurry blobs of light um, but Meyer was showing photographs of what was obviously a structured object. And that's what got him to prominence, because people are like, ooh, finally, some clear, you know, in-focus photographs of, of an extraterrestrial craft. Now, in general, these shots are created using a process uh, known as forced perspective, where you have a small object near the lens of a camera and you position it in such a way to make it look as though it's part of the larger background that the uh, of the image so that's that's really how all these all these photographs are are, are taken care of there's some cases where there's some double exposures and some some printings things but on the whole these are single shot single exposure photographs Technically, they're slides. These are these are all uh, slide positives. He took he took very few negative photos. Pretty much everything were, were uh, slide photographs. Well, so I, I guess before we get in any deeper, I should ask. Uh, so you say with certainty that these are at least apparent certainty that these are done with forced perspective or double exposure. Um, is there actually any evidence, or is this more of a surmisation, if I can invent a word, uh, from your analysis. Well, here, here's the thing that's important uh, to, to understand. Um, where the, per, the person, that part-time employee who made the mistake of calling it a hoax, technically, the only person who can claim something is a hoax is the person who perpetrated it. So, what I've been able to show through you know, throughout all this is stuff that supports the hoax hypothesis. 
So here's all these different ways that things have, have been made and things that have been originally presented as, you know, accurate information. And then when the origin of that information is revealed, then Meyer says that it was a malicious hoax by the FBI or something like that, that, you know, 20 years for 20 years, it was perfectly legitimate. And then when it was shown how it was done, then it became a hoax. Uh, and we'll get into an example him. of that with the uh, Ascot and Nira, I think, in a moment. Yeah, that's 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 a brilliant one. Um, okay. But I just want to yeah, sort so, of make it clear that because uh, th- there is a vocal minority that supports Meyer, that we are not necessarily making claims of fact that this is a fraud and a hoax. It is more these are the evidences that support the hoax hypothesis. Right. All of his material can be created through terrestrial rather than extraterrestrial means. Okay. And that's what the website shows. Like, here's how all of these things can be made. Okay. I just wanted to put more of that disclaimer out there. So th- so that's the basics behind the photograph. So then what about the, uh, the wedding cake one? So one of these very clear um, shots of what... Meyer put forward as a UFO. Right. The, the wedding cake was his last uh, spaceship design. There's about, I think, four to six different types of, of uh, spaceships designs. And the early ones actually look a lot better than, than the wedding cake. You know, they're more traditional, you know, saucer-shaped uh, craft you know, kind of like Forbidden Planet style, you know, and they fit within the environment a little better. Um, for some reason, he kind of decided to make a um, a more extravagant version of a, of, a, of a craft. And it came to be known as the Wedding Cake uh, UFO because it kind of resembled a wedding cake because uh, it was just full of... of Bobbles and ornaments and all sorts of you know flashy flashy bits. It bl- it's a blinged out spaceship. <laughs> they got the deluxe model, right? They they, they 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 got they got the touring package added to it. What happens is there's a guy in the UK by the name of Phil Langdon. He looked at these things and like those look like models. I like making models. Let me see if I can figure out how these are made. And so he went through and found all of the parts that were needed. And these are all parts that Meyer had access to. The most prominent one is the base of the spaceship. It's a very distinctive design. And it came from... Uh, a company named Harco Star made a series of containers, and it's the lid to one of those containers. And we know that Meyer had these containers and these lids because he's published photographs of people on his farm in the storeroom where all of these containers are. So we know that he has this. We also know this because his wife, uh, after their divorce, came out and said he made all of this stuff up. And recently his son has come out and said he's made all of this stuff up. So then if we can do a a quick digression, what's been the reaction from 
Meyer and or his followers and supporters and publicists, I guess, when these things have come out? Uh, they attack the person. They, they, they attack his ex-wife as being someone who had, who was just, um, trying to make money or trying to, to discredit him because she was upset that the marriage w- had ended and stuff like that. And, um, same thing towards his son, saying that he's disgruntled, he's disturbed, he's, he's mentally disturbed and all that sort of stuff. So that, so it's definitely trying to, uh, to, to poison the, the witness. That's, uh, that's uh, unfortunate, especially with his son. Yeah. So then the wedding cake UFO was sort of put together then from a container lid and with lots of other baubles. Lots, lots of things. You know, you have the Harco Star container lid, you have mixing bowls, you have tin lids, you have wooden bowls, you have washers, you have uh, uh, eyelets and curtain rings and... You know, my favorite is that there's 45 uh, silver uh, Christmas ornaments on it. Uh, it's a flower pot tray, shelf pins, you know, copper caps. I mean, it's ridiculous the the amount of of things that went into it. And one thing that's important uh, to understand: a lot of times, <clears throat> Meyer and his supporters talk about, well, how could a one-armed man do this? That was going to be my next question. <laughs> well, Billy Meyer um, is. Technically, he's a one-and-a-half-armed man. He is missing his left forearm. Uh, he was a bus driver in India in the 1960s, and one day um, he had his arm hanging out the window, and he got into a crash. And so his arm was severed. So why didn't the uh, aliens at the, at the elbow. He has, he has, my understanding is that he has the elbow, but he doesn't have the forearm. So why didn't the... Uh the aliens that he has in, or that he's been in contact with give him a new arm uh, because he says that they wanted to make, keep him humble ah well, I guess that would be one way to do it <laughs> so then how there, could, there are many oh, ways yeah. that these aliens of his if they were real that they could demonstrate their reality and yet at every single time they choose not to so then how could a one-armed or one and a half armed man put together um, the wedding cake UFO. Well, because Phil uh, Langdon knew that this would be an issue, he videotaped himself at every step of the assembly process doing it with only one and a half arms to show exactly how this is done. And so it's wonderful when you go to the, um, the Billy Meyer UFO case website, there's a section on the wedding cake UFO, and then there's how to make the wedding cake UFO. And so it has the photographs, it has the instructions, it has the photographs of Phil and all the parts, and then it has video of him at various stages showing how he's doing this with just one and a half arms. And so so it totally ends that argument because he shows how incredibly easy it is to do this with one and a half arms. Just by himself. And this is... You know, there, it's entirely possible that Meyer has help making these things. But we're going on the assumption that he's doing it himself. And here's how you can do it just by yourself. Well, that seems pretty convincing. Or at least yeah. pretty reasonable for, uh, in terms of, here's a photo that's being put forth as undeniable proof of UFO existence 
Whereas, okay, well, no, actually, here's how you can easily recreate it. Right. So again, and, that whole... And Phil did, a, did such a brilliant job on this because I had done an analysis of the photos and I had looked at it and I was able to identify about 70% of the materials. And I was wrong on about 20% of those. But he went through and he found every single part and reconstructed every last detail. And I have photo comparisons up between Phil's photographs and Meyer's photographs. And it is really hard to tell which ones are taken by Phil and which ones are taken by Meyer. Because, you know, when I was going through all this, I would get photographs. Because sometimes he would send me Meyers so he would see, show, so I would see the comparison. And there would be times, I'm really familiar with the, with the Meyer photographs now. And there were times I couldn't tell if one of the shots was his or if it was Meyers. So then I guess here's a, another side question for you. So one of the claims by one of Billy Meyer's uh, supporters, at least for the United States, by Michael Horn, which we'll get into later, but one of his claims is that he took, Michael Horn took these photographs to the special effects people who made uh, the movie Independence Day in the 1990s, and they told him, well, there's no way that we'd be able to do this without CGI these days, and so these photos look 100% real to us. And well, of course, that's wrong. Well, so, yeah. What's... <laughs> Michael, Michael Horn has a habit of misquoting people. Um, he's done this several times. And, and with that one specifically, I contacted uh, Mark Weigert uh, from Uncharted Territory. That's the person he's talking about. Because Michael Horn always uses this quote of Mark's to demonstrate the, um, the, the, uh, the validity of, of them. And he, the, the, the quote is, this is one of the films that the owners of Uncharted Territory, the Academy Award winning special effects house, they've viewed this film and determined that it was not a hoax. Uncharted Territory said that if they could duplicate Meyer's films, they would have to go to CGI to do it because clearly they are not models. So I contacted uh, Mark back in 2008 and he wrote back to me saying, the statement is kind of correct but not 100% accurate. And he says, looking at these space capsules, they said they look like miniature models, you know, very simplistic in design and very much what you would expect to see from that era because a sci-fi movie from the 50s has a style of, of uh, flying saucer that is different from a movie in the 2000s. Right. And then continuing, he says... They, they look like they were human design from a few decades ago. But to reflect on the statement that's in the film, I also remember seeing a shot on Super 8 that showed a UFO circling around a fairly tall tree. According to that shot, we said, we can't conclusively say whether it's real or not, but it seemed impossible to stage that kind of shot with a miniature. It would have to be hanging on a very tall crane with wires and, and that sort of stuff. So, yes... In regards to that shot, we mentioned that we could definitely do it today with CG, but at the time these were supposedly shot, it would have been very hard, maybe impossible to fake this kind of shot. So to sum it up, we did not say these are clearly not models. So I followed up with him and told him because that particular movie that he's talking about takes place uh, where this, where this um, uh, I believe it's the Type 2 craft, is circling around this tree in front of a farmhouse. Well... 
The owners of that farm have come forward and say that there never was a tree on their property, and that it, it, that this uh, they never had a tree there. So that lends the um, the idea of being that this is actually a small, a miniature tree or model tree that is being used for forced perspective, mm-hmm. along with the ship flying around it. And so I followed up with Mark saying, "Hey, you know." The owners of this property say that there is no tree there. That you know, and other things suggest that this is possibly a a, a miniature tree. And he wrote back, going, "Oh, well, if the tree is a model and it's forced perspective, then you would not need CGI to do this shot." And yet, that quote is still being used. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we actually diverged a little bit from um, the wedding cake one. Uh, is there anything else to say about that, or did we pretty much cover it? Well, the, the wedding cake, I, I just find even even people who believe in extraterrestrial contact and believe that there is ongoing contact with the Earth from from creatures from another planet, they think that Billy Meyer is full of crap. So they think Meyer is a hoaxer. And when you have the vast majority of the UFO community saying that something is a hoax, chances are it's a hoax. Even more, I think it really shows the weakness of their argument uh, more than just those of us looking at things from a, a, a rational scientific perspective. Well, that makes sense. But uh, I, I don't want to get too much into the argument from authority, argument at populum, because right. yeah, there will be people who say, oh, well, give us names, or those are just, you know, one person's opinion, or a group of people's opinion, and look at Galileo. Um, I mean, granted, in order to claim an argument of persecution like Galileo, you have to be right, but that's a different issue. So, right. Uh, but yeah, I think as, as a context, that that is a, a really important point to make, is that most of these people who are really big in the UFO community, like, say, Stanton Friedman or Jacques Vallée, for whom the Frenchman in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was sort of modeled after, they say that, in their opinion, the Meyer stuff is uh, fraud well, not fraudulent, but um, hoax material. Right. And I guess another, um, another pho- uh, photograph set that I wanted to talk about was Ascot and Nera, which also, I guess... For some background into that, could you tell us a little bit about what Meyer claims in terms of who these aliens are that have been visiting him and how they visit him? Because Ascot so, and Nira are supposed to be photographs of two of these aliens that visited him. Right. The the extraterrestrial. There's various types of extraterrestrials that have been claimed throughout the years, and the type of extraterrestrial that Meyer claims to have contact with is a group that is generically known as the Nordics. They're tall, fair-skinned, blonde-haired, you know, human. Uh, You know, they refer to them as extraterrestrial humans. Okay, and ones that Hitler would have been proud of, apparently, by their their looks. Yeah, there's there's certain... there, There are definitely some creepy... Uh, uh, things on on that line in in the Meyer case as well. Um, you know, when asked why the why the, the, all the contact notes and so on are all in German and why why are the conversations all in German? Apparently, the alien said it was the one true language. Huh. So 
that kind of gets a little creepy. Um, but regards Ascot and Nira, in 1983, uh, there was a book called UFO Contact from the Pleiades, Volume 2. And there's a picture of this blonde woman, you know, close-up shot of, the, of this blonde woman. And it says, the caption says, This photograph has erroneously been reported by others as a picture of some Yasi. This confusion began in 1975 when the first articles on the case were, were written by lesser informed individuals and has continued to this day. There are, in fact, no photographs of the Pleiadian cosmonaut Semyasi. This is a photograph of Asket, a cosmonaut from the Dahl universe who first had contact with Meyer in India in 1964 and helped him prepare for the Pleiadian contacts that would occur 11 years later. So, there's a few things going on in there. One is he claims to have contact with several ver- several different members of this of this race. The they uh, Meyer originally said that his extraterrestrials came from the Pleiades, but then when astronomers analyzed the, that region and said, "Oh, this is a really young, hot thing. There's no way that life can be there," he then said, "Well, they're not actually from the Pleiades. They're from an alternate universe." in the vicinity of the Pleiades, and then they stopped calling them Pleiadians and started calling them Pleiarans. Okay, and speaking as a, as an astronomer who took 14 classes of physics in undergrad, saying that a universe exists in the vicinity of a star system makes absolutely no sense unless there's some mistranslation going on. Well, I, th- I think he's actually talking about a multiverse situation that their planet is in the region of where the Pleiades would be in relation to us. So, okay, I guess, so same coordinates in 4D space. Right. Right. Okay. Which, of course, makes no sense, and if there are multiverses, we can't travel between them. Well, at least that we know of, and yeah. It's an unproven, (laughs) so it's a, let's see, I guess, how would we say this? It's an un qualified statement for an unproven hypothesis right and one that may not even be provable so you're jumping so you're going i don't know what that logical fallacy is called where you have you're assuming first of all that something exists and then you're assuming that you can do something with it without even knowing if it exists in the first place right uh okay so anyway moving on (laughs) so that's that's one of the issues yeah so in 1991 in the book the german publication of the book and yet they fly that photo is reprinted in a little better quality and then there's another photograph of the same woman uh next to a uh brunette it's fuzzy and out of focus and they say that this is um the 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 blonde woman is asket and the brunette is nira well i had heard throughout the years that this was actually um, singers from the Dean Martin Variety Show. And I found out what, you know, the, the blonde woman is actually this woman by the name of Michelle Delafave. And so a few years ago, I got in touch with her. Uh, she's, still, she's still around, she still performs, and she's still putting out records and stuff like that. She was part of the Dean Martin Variety Show from 1969 to 1973. In 2007, 
I, I wrote to her and we started corresponding and she said that Nira is actually Susan Lund who appeared on the D. Martin Variety Show from 1968 to 1973. And this is what Michelle uh, Delafave has to say about, about the photographs. I know that the picture of myself and Susie is from the Dean Martin show when the gold diggers were guests on the show. I think it is about 1971, and I did wear my hair with little curls at the side of my face. It amazes me that he chose that picture. I guess it was when they did the reruns in Europe. I do not anyone thinking I am causing any problems. I am simply stating the truth involved with these pictures. I just know a picture of myself when I see one, as anyone else would. I know it is from a segment when the gold diggers would sit around Dean Martin and sing beautiful ballads called Welcome to My World. She then sent me a photograph, uh, which is a video uh, still, which is the image that is used. Uh, it's It's from the same episode that was produced, uh, published, as being Ask at Nira. So, so then something, you know, keep in mind, so in 1983, this uh, photograph was published. It was then published again in 1991. And then, in 2001, with the English publication of And Yet They Fly, the photos are published again, but now they have a different explanation. So Billy Meyer writes, Unfortunately, during my conversation with Pata, he revealed that the two women depicted on the photos are not Ascot and Nira from the Dahl universe, but two American lookalikes. These photos are malicious hoaxes and were switched upon the order of and in collaboration with the Men in Black. So here's the thing. Why the change in 2001? Well, in the 1990s, videotapes of the best of the Dean Martin Variety Show started to be released. Okay, so and people could actually see. People could see it like, hey, that looks an awful lot like Ascat. So I asked one of the original investigators, Lee Elders, who is the... Uh, the publisher he published that original 1983 book, uh, UFO Contact from the Pleiades, Volume Two, and here's what he had to say: Billy supplied the material that was analyzed. I have letters from him stating that he was thrilled with the presentation. We gave him a couple hundred books at his request. I still have the letters saying he and the Pleiadians were happy the book had been done. In fact, the publication was mentioned in their original contact notes. So for 18 years, from 1983 to 2001, these photographs of Asket and Nira were promoted and published multiple times as being his Playaran extraterrestrial contacts. But then in 2001, the same photos are now, discussed, are now described as malicious hoaxes, and the only thing that changed during that time was that the Dean Martin Variety Show, the apparently original source material, started to be released on home video. So then have people actually confronted him with this change or anyone else with this change and asked, you know, what's going and they on just here? Keep, they just keep going on that it was, a, it was a hoax perpetrated by the men in black. And it's like, well, really, why didn't they 18 realize it earlier? years, yeah. you were using these photos, you saw these photos, you gave the approval prior to the original publication, and you didn't notice that those are not photos that you had taken? 
It just strains credulity to, to believe that. Well, so speaking of straining credulity and finding photos from other sources... Uh, there's one aspect of the case where Meyer likes to claim that he was taken in the craft by the Plejarans, or Plejarans, and apparently they, I've heard that they call them this so that uh, people who say, oh, I've been contacted by the same people, but they're called the Pleiadians, then we know that they're fakes. Uh, but I guess that's a, a different issue. Yeah, Meyer also claims that he is the only person on earth ever to have been contacted by extraterrestrials and that every other person who has ever claimed that they have been contacted by extraterrestrials is a liar and a, and a fraud. Yeah, I think that's might be part of why the UFO community doesn't like him. He claims that he's been taken in these crafts and they've actually time traveled. And yes. he was able to out the window of these crafts. I don't know if it was the deluxe model or the, the economy model craft. But he claims mm-hmm. that out the window he's been able to take photographs. So one of the photographs is of dinosaurs. Yeah. No, it's a really cool shot. And it's also interesting. I don't know where they take the photos because every single UFO uh, craft that he's presented does not have a window. Huh. Well, maybe it's a virtual glass type of thing. It, it, you know, it could be. It or like a view be. screen. Like on the Enterprise. It would actually have right. a window on the in the front of the... The bridge, they just have a view screen. So maybe it's something like that. Well, they do in the original series. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, did start, I, I started to rewatch the remastered version of the original series. Oh, they're gorgeous. Yeah, well, it's, it's still it's kind of sad. It's like, oh, I know they didn't have those effects, but oh, it looks so much better. Well, the other thing that's great, I mean, here we're going to go on a tangent that will be edited out. But yeah, whatever. Maybe the, the, not. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the thing that's gorgeous about them is that on the Blu-rays, if you want to see the original optical shots, they're there. You just hit the angle button, and you get to see them. They remastered those as well. But if you want to take a look at the new effects, you just can watch those. And unlike Lucas, who goes and rejiggers everything (laughs) on Star Wars, they made the shots the same type of shot. They just made it look better. No! (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay, moving back to this. So, so Meyer somehow has a window or a view screen or something that he takes photos of. One of them is dinosaurs. Right. So he, he took this, this shot of a pteranodon that, you know, is catching or releasing prey. You know, it's an out-of-focus, blurry shot like most – a lot of, of his shots are um, to, to some degree. They're not – you know, yes, they're more in focus than other people who have ever made – extraterrestrial photographs, but they're still, sometimes they're pretty blurry. But if this had been a live-action shot of of a pteranodon, oh my goodness, that would be awesome. Unfortunately, it's not. It's um, an illustration uh, by Zdednek Burian in the book Life Before Man. And I have this posted. There's There's a dinosaur photo deconstruction on the in the photo section of, of the uh, Billy Meyer UFO case website, and I actually scanned. Here's the page. It's page 137. So what I did is I had heard throughout the years that this was a an illustration from a book, and then at some point I found out 
that the illustrator had been identified as Udenek Burian. So then, thank you, Google Image Search. I do a search for a Udenek Burian dinosaur. And then I scroll for about an hour going through all the hundreds of, of images. And then I find it. And then I find what book it's published from. And then I go on Amazon and find a, a used bookseller who has it. And I order it. So I have the book in my possession. And it's the exact same photo, only in focus? It is an illustration. It's a gorgeous illustration. illustration. Yeah, not yeah, the photo. It's, yeah. <laughs> if Zdenek had a photograph of it, that would be awesome. But <laughs> no, it's, it's all illustrations from the, from the book Life Before Man. So, it, it's, it, it's interesting that um, in, in, in 2005, Billy Meyer put out this special bulletin number 20 in which he makes a claim that this photograph was another forgery perpetrated by the men in black. Uh-huh. And how long had, <laughs> he been, had he been promoting that one as real? Uh, since the uh, 1980s. Okay. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Meyer's first photographs are from 1964, and then they didn't, you know, didn't do too much. And it wasn't until the mid to late 70s that he had this explosion of creativity. And then his last photos were from the early 1980s, and he basically stopped doing any sort of physical evidence in the 1980s. And from that point on, he only deals with prophecies and, and yeah, I wanted that to get sort into, of uh, aspect. Prophecies later. Uh, but there's still more uh, physical evidence that he claims to put forth, uh, even though we're running at about, I guess, 35 minutes or so. Um, so one of the photography claims, and I guess it's also videography... Um, is includes the trees that we mentioned. So you said something about um, trees on farms uh, that aren't actually there, but he claims, or other people claim, that they've gone to university faculty and U.S. Forest Service people who have also apparently said that, no, these photographs are real and of real trees, and uh, these videos are showing real trees, and wow, that spacecraft looks real. How would he do that? And I was wondering if you could uh, elucidate any of that. Um, yeah, Michael lied. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's, it's, another, it's another one of his, of his misquotes. So, he makes this statement that six professors of forestry looked at Meyer's photos and looked at the trees, and each one determined that the trees are full-size mature trees and not models. And then he puts the names of these six professors on the screen of the video that he had made. So, I contacted each of those people. Uh, Professor Donald Hanley responded, I have no idea how you got my name, nor do I wish to comment on these photos. Do not continue to use my name in this fashion. Professor Everett Hansen responded, I have not authenticated real trees or made any other definitive statements about these photos. My observations are being misrepresented and my name and affiliation are being used without my permission. And Professor Edward Jensen uh, gave the, the most uh, thorough uh, response. 
and he actually included uh, the other people uh, uh, in response to this because he had been getting questions about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, gentlemen, an estimate of tree height, actually only the top portion of a single particular tree that I made several years ago in good faith has been taken out of context and misused to purport things that I did not intend. Further, my observations have been misappropriated and misapplied to photographs that I have never seen and situations that I have never reviewed. I want to assure you that I have never purported to authenticate any photos of, a, of alleged UFOs from Mr. Deerdorf, Mr. Meyer, Mr. Horn, or anyone else, nor have I ever purported to determine the authenticity of any trees in any photos of alleged UFOs for anyone." Mr. Deerdorf contacted me some years ago and asked if I could provide information about a tree in a photo that included an alleged UFO. The photo was of poor quality, but I assumed that the tree in the photo was real and gave an estimate of the height of the portion of the tree above the alleged UFO based on that assumption. I did not opine that the tree in the photo was truly real rather than a model, that the alleged UFO was real, or that the photograph was real and unaltered. I certainly have never offered any support to Mr. Deerdorf or Mr. Meyer for their claims that there are real UFOs or real trees in any photograph. I hope this will end the matter and that neither my name nor that of Oregon State University will be used inaccurately again in connection with these photographs. To this end, I have copied the General Counsel of Oregon State University, and I will direct any further communication about this matter to them. Thank you for your cooperation. Well, that seems pretty damning. That's pretty on target. That is pretty much you you are keep... And, and yet... Horn and Meyer and all these people keep using these same quotes over and over and over. So, um, so I guess actually that gets us to another digression. I, I hate going nonlinear, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> we should probably. It's, it's hard to stay linear with this because there's just such a plethora. Right, and of it all stuff. branches out. Um, I think it's important at this point because you threw out a few names and we've been using we've been talking about Michael Horn a bit. If we talked a little bit about the other people involved in the case, specifically Michael Horn and uh, is it James Deerdorf? Yes. Um, so yeah. Michael Horn is Billy Myers' publicist, unofficial, uh, pu unofficial official publicist. I think. Yeah, it, it, it. I don't quite understand their relationship that they have, but they have some sort of agreement that Michael can go out and promote the case. And, you know, sell products based on the case. And Michael is, as far as I know, a member of Meyer's um, organization uh, known as FIGU. And James Deerdorf is someone who was an early proponent of the case and was going around to various organizations and, and people asking them to take a look at very, at various photographs and give their opinion on it. We know from this incident that what the professor said to Deerdorf is not what's being actually said that he said. And I know, I don't have this published, uh, and I, I, this is one of the things I'll, I'll need to get online later, but I know for a fact that he went to other people and said, you know, they're analyzing photographs, like there's a photograph where hovering over a lake, and there's a reflection of the lake and the underside of the craft and, and stuff like that. 
And apparently, Deerdorf asked the people that were analyzing the photos to actually do that for him. Uh, that they actually, you know, altered the photograph to make it look more realistic. Hmm. So, there's there's a lot of interesting people involved in the case that ha- seem to have difficulty uh, with the truth. And that also is a thing that happens with the movies. He released a few 8mm and Super 8mm films, but the problem is they are not... They can't be tested. There's cl- All sorts of claims are being made about the movies that simply cannot be made. Now, again, this is where our, my professional experience really comes into place because this is something I do for my living. So, the way that films are supposed to be transferred to videotape is that you have a special projector that projects the images into a video camera of some sort. That's a really rudimentary way to do it. You don't actually do it that way nowadays. Now it's film scanning, where you actually scan each individual frame of the film and into making a like a QuickTime movie and then making a movie out of it. But general, back in their time, back in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, what you would do is you take a film projector and plug it into a video camera, hit play on the projector, record on the video camera, and then you would make an, a, an image. Again, that's a really rudimentary way of explaining it. It's a lot more complicated than that, but just to give you the idea. So, what Meyer did is there's a Japanese uh, television crew that came to visit him to do a documentary. And he projected for them movies on a screen. And the video crew videotaped the projection on the screen. So, you're actually getting the only video that we have, the only recordings of these films are not properly telecined or scanned images. They're a recording of a projection on a screen. So kind of like so NASA nothing's in with yeah, the, nothing's with the in focus and there are additional camera moves because you know the the camera operator is zooming in on things and there's other things. So you, there are times when they say, "Oh, look at this camera move," and it's like, "Look how this thing moves." It's like, well, it doesn't actually move that way. That's the the camera operator zoomed in at that time. So you know, it's really shaky. And and so I have challenged Michael Horn and Billy Meyer again. This is what I do professionally. I will pay out of my own pocket for professional high-definition def- film scans of the 8mm films. That's generous. They will not provide them. They're not even sure if they exist any longer. And this is something that happens very frequently with the Meyer case. None of the photos, none of the original slide positives are available for testing because somehow they've all been lost. Or they've been stolen by governments or the men in black replaced them, or something like that. But he claims to have taken over 1,000 photographs. About 50 to 100 have been published, but the others haven't been, and you can't actually do any testing on any of them. Hmm. And the same thing is true with 
the movies and the metal samples. Well, so that brings us to another aspect that I wanted to get into is these metal samples because these are things that he's put forward and Horn has put forward as, well, these are actual samples of extraterrestrial stuff. So haven't those been tested and what do they show if they've been tested? They were tested by a chemist by the name of Marcel Vogel. He was not a metallurgist. So he was not using the equipment properly. He was not properly trained in how to use the examination equipment. And uh, a, a wonderful guy by the name of Ivan Alvarado Rodriguez from the Independent Investigations Group, who actually is a physicist, he went through and analyzed Vogel's analysis and found out how wrong it was. And prior to that, I was dealing with the claims that as were published, which didn't make any sense. So what were the claims as published? Well, the claims as published were that he could, he, he, he was able to see that it contained every, almost all the elements of the periodic table, that it contained this rare, uh, earth element known as thulium, um, that he, uh, that things were crystalline in nature, and all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. And I did the best I could based on what was published out there. But, you know, I make TV shows for a living. I, I am not a physicist, but Ivan is. And he went through, and he actually had the exact piece of equipment, the, 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 um, the X-ray spectrometer that Marshall Vogel used. There's a, there's a movie that was made, um, called Beamship, and he's in that. And Ivan's like, we have that in the basement of our lab, and he used it to to uh, to make these these analysis. I'll go briefly uh, over over the claims and what Ivan was able to discover. Okay. The first is claim is that the material contains a wide range of elements of the periodic table. the The, the answer is Vogel incorrectly interprets the continuum. Uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this right. Bremstrahlung X-ray spectrum yeah, right. as the spectrum produced by many element bands close together. The Bremstrahlung spectrum contains no useful information about the element composition of a given sample. Yeah, so I guess uh, to, to expand on that for listeners who don't know anything about spectroscopy, basically this device is, is splitting up the light that's either reflected off of or coming th- or being transmitted through or whatever the sample, and you can get different type of types of patterns from that Uh, if you see a sharp spike at a certain wavelength of light there's a lot of that light and that can tell you what type of element is in the sample so if you see a sharp spike at a certain wavelength around uh, 6500 angstroms then that's a good indicator of hydrogen now if you see just a continuum so if you just see like a flat line basically that you're getting a bunch of light back at all wavelengths so apparently he interpreted that as you're seeing everything, whereas the proper interpretation is that's actually something else and you're not getting any useful information out of it. Right. And then the next claim about the material contains the rare earth element thulium. Well, the EDS X-ray spectrum shown by Vogel is aluminum and not thulium. 
This is concluded after Vogel's admission that the thulium's secondary bands are missing. Aluminum with traces of silver is the best explanation for the spectrum shown. And this corroborates with something else that was shown in the video, where the um, they went to one uh, an, uh, an al- analyst. They went to one analyst, and he's like, it's got aluminum, it's got some silver, it's got some copper, that's basically it. So it's an unremarkable piece of metal. Then they went to Marcel Vogel, who then said it had all these strange and wondrous properties. So they scientists shopped. Right. <laughs> and the third claim about the metal is that mater- the material did not require gold code- gold coating for SEM imaging. And gold coating in SEM is used exclusively when the sample is non-conducting. The fourth claim is portions identified as metal exhibit crystal birefringence. And the, opti- and the answer is the optical micros- microscopy uh, methods used by Vogel are not suitable to conclusively demonstrate that some portions of the sample exhibit optical birefringence. And then the next claim, portions of the sample examined at magnification of 500 diameters show evidence of micromanipulation. The answer is, it's found that indentations similar to those found by Vogel can be produced by conventional metal machining. The indentations have a pitch small enough to be captured with a scanning electron microscope at a 500 diameter magnification. And finally, the statements made to the effect of how these metal samples are unusual, extraordinary, difficult to fabricate, etc. All of these are Vogel's own opinions, and they are not supported by the evidence he presents. It is also not clear why the claims, even if true, would make the metal samples remarkable or worth studying. Or extraterrestrial, even. Or, or Yeah, again, it's the rare earth element thulium mm-hmm. that he claimed to have. Well, and you can still have rare earth elements inside of terrestrial samples. Rare just means it's rare in a standard hunk of rock on Earth. Right. I mean, China actually has a ton, well, many tons. They have a lot of rare earth elements, and that's actually a geopolitical issue right now because they're useful in modern electronics. And we're like, well, you know, China has a bunch of it. Uh, I guess we have to make nice with them. Right. So, you know, you can still have rare earth elements in earth samples. And I think that's an important point to make is that, so the claim is that this is undisputable proof or indisputable proof that this sample came from an extraterrestrial source. Here's our Scientologist saying, well, not Scientologist, is in the religion. <laughs> scientician, that's the word I was going for. Scientician, that's the Futurama term. Uh, ah. so, so here's our scientician who says, yes, it is. And, well, actually, no, it's not. He used the wrong equipment and didn't interpret it the way he should have inter- Well, he didn't interpret it the way that the equipment was designed to be interpreted. And even if he did, everything that he said is still explainable by Earth machining and earth element processes and and the thing is they they like to tout vogel's credentials yes they do all these patents and so on he used to work for ibm he basically invented the coding that was used in in hard drives and floppy disks you know no one's denying that marcel vogel was a brilliant chemist but he was not a metallurgist he was not a physicist he was unqualified 
to perform an analysis of this metal. Yeah, well, I mean, my favorite argument from authority is uh, Isaac Newton, and Isaac Newton believed very strongly in alchemy. And it's just like, you know, smart people and well-credentialed people can be stupid in other things. Right. And, uh, you know, argument from authority is just that. It's an argument from authority. We've gone through video and photos and the metal samples. I guess one last piece of physical evidence would be audio. And so can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so in, in 1980... He claims to have made this uh, tape recording of the sound that the spacecraft make. And it's an interesting sound. It's, it's weird. Kind of sounds like, you know, uh, the sound you would expect a spaceship to make from the 1950s, you know, forbidden planety, kind of we- weird, worrying, you know, sort of like harmonic like sort a of sound. Yeah, you know, it has that sort of quality to it. It's, and... There are specific claims made about it, and those claims are just not true. And the main thing being is that it was somehow able to record audio frequencies outside of the audible range of humans. Well, that would be pretty impressive. That would be. Now, the the range of human hearing is from about 15 hertz to 20,000 hertz. The problem first, though, is what they recorded on. These were audio cassette tapes. So, a modern audio cassette deck only has a frequency range of 25 hertz to 19,000 hertz. And then a modern portable cassette recorder only has a range from 100 hertz to 8,000 hertz. I, so I see a difference. That's well there. within that's a well within the range of human hearing, and a, rec- a cassette recorder that was from 1984, so it was in the same era, could only record from 300 hertz to 5,000 hertz. So, no audio cassette recorder has the ability of recording any audio frequencies outside the range of human hearing. Um. So let's imagine that Meyer had a magical audio cassette recorder that could record any audio frequency imaginable. What about the tape stock? Magic. Audio cassette. Maxell has a professional line of audio cassette. And their stated range is from 315 hertz to 16,000 hertz. So no tape recorder nor any audio tape is capable of recording frequencies outside of the range of human hearing. In 2008, after I had published this information, he then Michael Horn says, "Oh, the eight the, the eight inaudible sounds were actually just a mathematical calculation based on the audible sounds." Which, of course, is not what was said. It's just another one of the long line of Michael Horn and other uh, followers of, of Meyer making stuff up. Now, the thing that's really cool, and this gets back to Phil Langdon and the, the recreations that he's done. Throughout the years, we've 
a lot of people have tried to figure out what the actual audio was because it is a cool audio. It's neat. And it's like, well, is it a Hollywood sound effect recording? Is it an oscillator or synthesizer? Is it feedback played through a tape delay? But we now know that the audio recording is in fact from one of Meyer's spaceships. Here's how we know this. Phil Langdon has done such an accurate job at recreating the various types of Meyer UFOs. One day, he was setting up the, the model of the Type 1 UFO to take some photographs of it. And the way that he does it, he has a fishing, a fishing line tied between two trees far away, and then he has the model hang from another fishing line, you know, on the, uh, you know, from the, from the one that's tied between the two trees. Okay. So he's got this set up, he's getting his camera ready, and then a strange but familiar sound starts to emanate from the model. What happened is that the fishing line and the model are engaging in acoustic resonance. This is the property that gives stringed musical instruments their sound. You vibrate a string, it's picked up you know, by a hollow body, and then that hollow body amplifies the audio. The wind was vibrating the fishing line, the horizontal fishing line. It was sending that vibration down into the model, which is, which is hollow, and it started vibrating. And that vibrating is the sound. It is identical. It is exactly what the, the Meyer audio is. So, Meyer's right when he says that it's an audio of one of his spaceships. It's just that the spaceship is only about eight or nine inches in diameter. Well, that seems, uh, pretty intriguing. I mean, have you, uh, or has anyone, has he approached Meyer or Horn or anyone with this and said, what's going on, or? No one's, no, people have tried to say that, like, the waveform is slightly different, you know, or it's not, it doesn't have as wide of a range or, or something, but it's the same, it, it, it is the same thing. You know, you're not going to have an identical waveform because it's two different models recorded at two separate times. Right. But you're, you're, you're looking for similarities in the waveform, and the similarities are there. And again, this is pointing towards, okay, we're not proving that the Meyer stuff was a hoax, but we are showing that this was a very capable thing to do. We, we can do this kind of stuff, and at the very least, it is not proof that UFOs equal aliens, and that it is definitely not proof that Meyer was visited by these people, or aliens. Right. I guess that takes care of a lot of the uh, overview of the physical evidence that's been pointed to over the past few decades. But as you said, since about the 1980s, he and his followers have focused more on the alleged prophecies. And those are actually going to be the focus of at least two future podcasts that I'm going to be doing. Uh, So I wanted to know if you could give sort of a brief overview of some of these and what the claims are and maybe 
I guess, uh, one or two of your favorite prophecies and what the actual case has been. Well, I know that you're going to be dealing in future episodes about the astronomical predictions. Right. So I won't, I won't ad- address any of those uh, now, um, but he's made several astronomical predictions, all of which basically tend to be a retrodiction. And that's how most of these prophecies are. They're not prediction, they're retrodiction. He, something happens and then he claims that something he wrote actually applied to the thing that happened. So what's a good but example? That's not uh, astronomy. <laughs> yeah. My favorite is the Bougay Power Station. What happened is, th- and this is something that was promoted by Meyer, by Horn, as being the best case example of Meyer's predictive abilities. So the, 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 the prediction is this. The danger of accidents in nuclear reactors will increase throughout the world. Regarding this subject, France in particular must be extraordinarily careful in every way, for one prophecy warns of a strong probability for an accident near Lyon, which can be prevented as long as the responsible individuals undertake the right steps. A prophecy can be changed. That sounds like astrology. Yeah, it. it you notice how vague... It actually right. is. Right. Well, this could happen, but if you do this, it might not. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, it's like France has the most nuclear power generating plants of all of the developed countries, you know. And you wouldn't need to be psychic or extraterrestrial to predict that France might have an accident at a nuclear power plant someday. Um, it's like saying at some point California is going to have an earthquake. Right, or a politician is going to lie. Right. So here's the thing. In 2005, Michael Horn wrote, Meyer specifically warned of the possibility of an accident, one that he said could be avoided, however, at the nuclear power plant near Lyon, France. The emergency scenario and the timely shutdown of that exact plant occurred on August 12, 2003. Oh, all right, we have a, an absolute date that this prediction came true. Let's look into this. There's just a small problem with, with their description. There was no accident involving the nuclear power plant near Lyon, and the plant was never shut down. Oh, okay. <laughs> so here's what happened. In August of 2003, Europe was suffering from the worst heat wave in recorded history up to that time. And at least 35,000 people, possibly up to 50,000 people, died due to heat exposure throughout Europe. Nearly 15,000 people died in France alone. So, France was really hard hit because of there's a tradition of going on vacation during the month of August. So, many public servants, including power plant personnel, were not there. You know, they were away from their places of work. And 75% of France's electrical power comes from nuclear power plants, such as the Bouguet Power Station located on the Rhone River near Lyon. So, most power plants, most nuclear power plants are located along uh, rivers. The reason being is that you need to cool uh, cool, cool the core. And so what happens is cool water from the river comes into the power plant is is heated up 
from it's running through all the the hot energy and everything going through there, and then it's put into a holding area, and then once the water is cooled down enough, it goes back into the river. So French environmental regulations state that the maximum temperature that the water released back into the into the river could be is 24 degrees centigrade, because they're just if it's warmer than that, there's a concern that it could damage the plant and animal life in the river. Makes sense. So in August of 2003, the demand for electricity was so high and power plants had such a difficult time generating enough electricity because there's such a load on the system because of how hot it was that there, there was a, plants were asked if they could be allowed to release the water back into the river warmer than 24 degrees centigrade. So they could get and on August flow. 12th, yeah, and on August 12th, 2003, you know, that's the date that Horn points out, the French government allowed six power plants to discharge their cooling water one degree centigrade warmer than normal. And the Bouguet power station was mentioned in several articles because it had already requested that special exemption. So all that happened was that the water going from the power plant into the river was released from, instead of 24 degrees centigrade, to 25 degrees centigrade. And that's it. The plant was never shut down. In fact, if the plant had shut down, you know, many more people would have died from, from the lack of electricity and from the heat exposure and not being able to run air conditioning and all that sort of stuff. So in 2008, after I showed how there was no way that this prophecy had come true, Michael Horn then said, oh, wait, it's not the 2003 incident that was the subject of the prophecy, but actually a 2001 event. This is where the whole retrodiction, where you someone has made something and then you try to find some way to make it fit. Right. So you can't have a prophecy, you know, be a legitimate prophecy if two separate events are said to be the result of it. Well, unless it's specifically predicted two separate events. Right. But... It also makes it worse for them because the 2001 event can't be described as an accident either. Uh, there are five reactors at the Bouguet power station. On August 30th, 1996, they, do, they made the decision to decommission the Bouguet 1 reactor. And in 2001, that scheduled shutdown and dismantling of the reactor began. That's it. No accident. No fear of global catastrophe. Just the scheduled shutdown of the reactor that was publicly announced would be shut down in 1996. And this is what they promote as being the best case example of Meyer's prophetic abilities. Now that doesn't seem too prophetic. No. No, it really isn't. And you have all of these news stories and stuff linked up on the website that people can look at. Yes. Yes. I have, it's billymeyerufocase.com, and it's organized into who is Meyer, the audio, the metal, the movies, the photos, and the prophecies. And you have a very well-written description of one of those prophecies on your website as well. Uh, one of the astronomy ones. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. I uh, there's, there's some guy by the name of uh, Stuart Robbins. Oh, yeah, who, uh, yeah that guy. 
who who gave me permission to uh, reprint his article from his exposing pseudo astronomy blog. Yeah, I don't really read that riffraff. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, so that was actually how we first met. Was uh, I think uh, a local skeptic had introduced me to you because of that? Because I had written on Meyer before, and uh, he's like, "Oh, I know this guy. You should look up Derek. Derek, meet Stewart." Uh, okay. So moving on. Um, is there any other particular favorite prophecy, or uh, I guess we we are running a bit long at this point? Um, there, there are. There's more stuff on the web. And uh, I invite people to go and, and, and look, and it's fun. You know, the thing is, Meyer, yes, I've been involved with this case for 11 or so years. I never expected to still be dealing with this for this long. But part of it is, people like Horn, they spend their life, this is their livelihood. So they spend every day working on the case and promoting the case and talking about the case. And they think that every critic of the case is doing the same thing. I spend at most one week a year doing this. I spend like a couple weekends spread throughout the year addressing certain things. And I get a huge backlog and then when I have a, 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 a period of free time and and a, and a desire to, to delve back into it, then I'll work and I'll work on writing stuff up and posting it and getting it published. I do not think about this on a daily basis. This is not something that is a huge part of my life. That's good to know. It's just, yeah, it's just it's just dragged on a lot longer than I ever thought it would. So I guess then I have two final questions for you. Uh, the first is, what would it take to falsify your conclusions? Because there are going to be... Uh, many UFOs equal aliens people who like to scoff at self-described skeptics and say that you know, we're as diehard anti-believers as we claim them to be believers. And I know that there are at least two UFO people who listen to my podcast and at least one who's a Meyer supporter. And so sort of just putting it out there on the table, what would you like or what would it take to convince you of the validity of the Meyer material? Evidence that shows an extraterrestrial origin. All of the evidence provided to date can be achieved through terrestrial means. And even some might argue, can it be achieved more easily through terrestrial means? Oh, much easier than some of the claims. Um, and it really does come down to, you know, there's a lot of times, you know, it's the, it's the cliche, like, let the damn ship land, have them come out, have someone go in and fly off again, and have that person come back and having videotaped everything that happened. That would be really, really good evidence of something happening. And nothing like that has happened with any UFO case. It's always... I'm, I'm always reminded of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where... For, Ford, Ford Prefect is explaining how he got stranded on the Earth. And it was because he, would, he hitched a lift with teenagers with nothing better to do than find some planet that hadn't made interstellar contact yet, land next to some poor unsuspecting soul who no one is ever going to believe, and get out and strut up and down in front of them wearing silly antennae on the, their heads making meat meat noises. 
Well, that sounds about like Even it. that, yeah, even that would be better evidence than what Meyer has produced. So then my final question is, uh, and it's somewhat standard for interviews, and my understanding is that since you just started listening to my epic podcasts, you haven't gone to the interviews yet, so this is a surprise. Uh, <laughs> if you could get Meyer or Horn into a room and they had to answer any one question of yours, what would that question be? Will you provide the 8mm films for proper transfer to video? Hmm. It's an interesting question. I would have thought more along the lines of, were you just making this up? <laughs> so more bigger well, picture. I want, it's like, I want to see those films. I have a feeling that if we are to get the original 8mm films and do a proper high-definition transfer of them, they would reveal a lot about how they were done. I believe that we would be able to see the string attaching to the top of the model. Uh, actually, sorry, real quick, I guess. <laughs> um, you say the string attached to the model. One of the videos is of an alleged pendulum ship, or ship with a pendulum drive, and I was wondering if you could, one minute or less, real quickly explain that, because that's one we didn't the- talk about. It's not a pendulum drive. It's that the movement is that of a pendulum. Someone is twirling. It, it's as though you're ki- holding something from a string and twirling it around in a circle with your fingers. Well, I, I thought that the explanation given by people was, oh, well, this is just, it works on a pendulum space drive. That's No, no. As far as I know, they, they, it's just a, a description of how it looks, okay. not, not how it's done. But I do remember Michael Horn showing a image of a small plastic toy riding on um, uh, uh, hovering uh, over a superconductive um, uh, surface. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it kind of wobbled. And he's like, see? See? It looks the same. Yes. It's a one-inch piece of plastic. Of course, you know, you're not helping your argument. Right. All right. Well, um, I think that's about it. Unless there was anything else you wanted to say or get through. No. This is this has been wonderful. It's been great talking to you and going into this much detail on on the case. Yeah, you only got about ten fifteen minutes on the SGU episode, and I was like, oh come on, I know Derek knows a lot more about this stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, um, I mean, I'm gonna edit it down a little bit, but um, I'm guessing it's gonna be at least an hour long episode. Okay. Cool. Thanks again to Derek Bartholomus for agreeing to come on and share a lot of his expertise with us on the Billy Meyer UFO case. As I said, I will actually be talking about this in the future, but I'll be talking about some very specific astronomy-based predictions that have been put forward by Meyer and Horn about uh, these ideas in astronomy that supposedly he predicted but hadn't been known at the time and then were later shown to be correct. Um, I'd also like to point out at this point that, again, this is not we're saying that Meyer is a fraud or a hoax or whatever. This is more, this is the evidence that has been put forward as 
evidence or proof of the Billy Meyer case being real, real extraterrestrials visiting this one-armed Swiss farmer. What we've shown is that it can be reproduced and easily be reproduced by terrestrial methods by a one-armed person with 1960s, 70s, 80s technology. So, again, make whatever conclusions you'd like from that information. In addition to that, I'm sure that there's going to be evidence that we didn't talk about that's going to be pointed out, well, what about this? You didn't look at this. What about this? This is perfect proof. This is kind of like the moon hoax stuff, which is what I just talked about in the previous episode. There are going to always be many, many, many more claims than one person could really ever address. The point of this is to look at some of the best and most prominent evidence that's been put forward as alleged proof of the case. Then, if that can be shown as, no, this is actually not indisputable proof of the case, then you kind of have to fall back on the idea, well, maybe this is not real. Maybe the real story is the conventional one. Yes, we did go to the moon. No, this is not actual proof of extraterrestrial visitors. And again, I recommend and encourage that you do your own research into the subjects that I talk about. Don't just take my word for it. Don't just take Derek's word for it. But also don't just take Billy Myers or Michael Horns or other people's word for it. Do your own research into the subject and look at all of the evidence, not just what one side or the other claims to present as fact. You've been listening to the 32nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. I know this was a little long, so I'm impressed if you're still listening. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope that it was at least mildly entertaining and enjoyable while you were doing whatever you were doing while listening. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. You know the usual about feedback? Send it in to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the webpage for this episode. I read every email and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, and even if you didn't like this podcast, you can feel free to write a review on iTunes or the portal of your choice. 